Welcome to the Law Firm Growth Podcast, where we share the latest tips, tactics, and strategies for scaling your practice from the top experts in the world of growing law firms. Are you ready to take your practice to the next level? Let's get started. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Law Firm Growth Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Jan Roos, and really excited about our topic today and our speaker. We got Zach Montroy, who is the founder and CEO of the Intention Collective, and we were talking about building functional workplaces, helping people achieve a higher goal through their work, which is something I think is really lacking in today's day and age, especially in the law firm community, and you know, really excited to have Jan, Zach. Thanks so much, John. I am have become a quick fan of the podcast and love the resources that you are giving to firm owners in just this idea of creating a better workplace, something we're really passionate about, but love the work that you've been doing with owners as well. Awesome. Thanks for that, Zach. So we didn't actually talk about this on the pre-chat, but it's it's a topic that I've talked about a lot with my team members and other business owners and stuff like that. And this is just this concept where we have this situation where whatever the state of the world that we're in, people are expected to give 40 hours plus of their life every single week to jobs. And I think there's a huge imperative for people who own businesses, business owners, or, and even people that are leaders within businesses to make sure that like that is a meaningful use of people's time. Because if it's not, we're throwing away what, you know, a quarter of our lives, more than probably a third of our waking hours to something that might feel useless or completely... <laughs> you know, Sisyphean. And I think it's a big challenge. But like, you know, as far as getting this into like practice with law firms, and you know, anyone in general, too, like, let's talk about how you kind of arrived at focusing on this and helping people with this specifically. Yeah, I, I think probably through a lot of pain, right? I was actually talking to a business owner today. He said, when I got into law 30 years ago, none of this stuff mattered, right? You just showed up every day and you did your job and you did it until you, you had to leave. And no one really cared about who I was as a person. And my first question to him was, well, what was that like? And he said, it was absolutely miserable. I thought I had chosen the wrong career and wanted to do things differently. And I think for most, most of us, we grew up in this era of your work self is one person, you know, check who you are at the door. When you come into work, we just need you to get shit done and, you know, don't do anything out. Don't bring emotion. Don't bring vulnerability. And we now know, well, we probably knew it back then, but we now know we're not wired to do that, right? Like we're wired to bring our whole self into work every day. And when as, you know, when we as leaders can create an environment where that's safe, we're encouraging people to do meaningful work. We actually understand who they are and their strengths and their abilities. Not only are we going to create a much more meaningful, you know, set of hours, a third of their work life, like you said, I'm also going to get a much better work out of them, right? Like they're going to want to show up to work. They're going to want to give their best because they're utilizing their skills and abilities. And we now have a lot of brain research that says the same thing, right? We, when we can find joy and fulfillment in our work, we sort of have boundless energy to do that. And so for me, creating consultancy to help law firms, to help companies really create that environment where we can scale and grow in a healthy way because there's a people focus to it. I think there's something really special to that, to create those human-centric environments. Yeah, well said. 
So I want to put something out there for the devil's advocates because, you know, I like to talk about both sides of things for the guys like, ah, you know, this seems a little touchy feely. I don't really know if this is going to be for me. Don't delete this episode. Zach, let's talk about what are some of the symptoms if we wanted to go a little bit more left brain for this? What are the symptoms that happen when people don't have this dialed in? And what are some benefits that people can have when they do have this dialed in with their workplace? Yeah, well, first of all, Jan, I love the skeptics. So thanks for encouraging them to keep listening. I was that skeptic for a lot of years. Like, just show up, do your job and get it done and move on. Like, go have a happy life outside of work. And, you know, got promoted quickly because I I just thought I had a good work ethic, but really found no meaning, no fulfillment in my job and got burnt out. And for business owners for firm owners, for for leaders who are saying like, I want to keep all this touchy feely, you know, stuff out of the workplace. The problem with that is inevitably is going to affect your bottom line. Burnout happens because of lack of fulfillment. Burnout happens because of lack of connection with other people in your workplace. Burnout happens because people don't understand how their work affects the overall vision of the the organization as a whole. So then we're having to replace employees. We have employees who aren't functioning at 100%, who probably aren't even functioning at 50%. So for no other reason you want to take this stuff seriously, then it is drastically affecting your bottom line. Then let that be sort of the, the encouragement for you to do that. I would say, hopefully it goes beyond that. But for the skeptic who says like, this stuff doesn't matter, we have a lot of research that's going to tell you the opposite. This stuff actually not only matters, if you want to create a healthy, scalable organization, you have to prioritize this work. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. We've had a couple podcast guests recently that have talked about, you know, I've just been calling this like the other side of scale, because it's like, you know, we obviously talk about marketing and sales and that kind of stuff a ton. But it's just like, yeah, well, marketing and sales creates a bandwidth problem, you got to hire people. And if you're not paying close attention to what's going to happen when those people come on, then I mean, look, I've been there. It's it's not it's it's very, very expensive to hire the wrong people or have hire the right people and have them quit for reasons that you might have been able mm. to avoid. So it's just like, you know, and, you know, you hear these stats all the time too, like the cost of firing an employee or like, you know, having an employee not work out could be three times the salary. And, you know, I also think there's probably a qualitative angle too. Like I I feel like the people who are the true A players who know what kind of value they command in the market as far as working out. Like, I feel like they would be even more choosy about having a place that they'd want to work and fulfilling, right? Right. And culture always defaults to the worst behavior we allow. And often that behavior is coming from lack of accountability. And lack of accountability, I would say, is always on the leader. And most of the time, we don't hold people accountable because we have not given them clarity. We, they don't really know what they should be doing, what they're accountable for, what their number is, what it is that a win looks like for them in their job. And so you kind of go down this spiral of, okay, I don't really know what clarity is. No one's going to hold me accountable. I'm going to kind of do the minimum that I need to do to get by. I really hate my job. Everyone probably knows it. Well, if I'm a you know star player on the team, an A player, what am I going to do? Like, well, you know, John over here doesn't have to do anything. Like, I'm just going to do that. Culture always defaults to the worst behavior we allow. And if we are not actively working on culture, it is going to actively be working against us. 
Okay. So I love that. And you're kind of reminding me of a situation I had when I was in college. It was just, I think everyone's had one of these situations where you have like the roommate and the dishes. And if anyone stops doing the dishes, it's just like, who else wants to do the dishes? Like, I'm not some sucker. I'm not going to be doing this other guy's yes, work. Exactly. Um, but it goes to like the biggest companies. So it's like, you know, for people that are kind of getting started with this, um, you know, we talked about things starting with the leader. For, and again, we have like a lot of leaders that will listen to the show. Where do people get started with this? I know there's like a lot of things coming on and I think it could probably seem kind of overwhelming. I love talking about accountability. It's something that we've kind of had to focus on a lot recently internally. But what's a good starting point for people to kind of try to tackle this this, this big culture beast? <laughs> I think first, you have to start with what is it that you want? You know, if you're a business owner, if you you just started your own firm and you started bringing on, you know, the paralegal, the assistant, you're going to start hiring an associate soon. You've got to figure out where you want to go. Like, what does five years look like? from here, you know, and start reverse engineering that what does three years look like? So then we're going to start building a structure. And we're going to start having a cadence around how we actually start executing that plan. And we, you know, create a scoreboard where we know if we're winning the game, you know, most companies look at lagging metrics and like what we did last quarter last month, we don't really know if we're winning the game while we're playing it. All of those things are culture builders. Because if as an employee, as an associate attorney, as another partner who's coming on with you, if I know where we want to go and I understand my role and how we're going to get there, I can fully commit, you know, the time that I'm giving you in my work life to actually helping get to that destination. And not only what is that destination, but why are we going there? What are we as a, as a firm best in the world at? What drives our economic engine? What are the values that we ascribe to? I think in, in the work that we do in organizations is, you know, we, we say we got we to gotta kind of come up with a dashboard here. Who is it that we want to be? Who is it that we are saying we are? And what's the formula that we're going to use to getting there? And so we have this roadmap to say, here's where we're at. Here's where we want to be. And here's here are the bets that we are making that are going to help us get to that point. And now we can align people around that vision, people around that mission. And that's what really helps create the ethos of the culture that we want for our teams. Okay. And it's one of these things that like, I think I've seen this, this through line in a couple of the responses you've been giving, Zach. It's like, I feel like there might be a lot of commonalities with people that don't understand what their role is within the company. And I think like when I think about stuff around like, you know, intention and impact and those kind of things too. And I think like it, it might be hard for some attorneys because like they might think that, hey, look, you know, I'm not saving the rainforest. I mean, I, I hope people do feel like they're making a positive impact in their community. But if they don't feel like that's super, but what I'm kind of hearing is that, if, you know, it doesn't necessarily need to be some like crazy change the world goal, although that obviously probably helps. Sometimes it can just be having clarity and that you're moving the ball forward for the team. Am I right? Absolutely. I was listening to a podcast that you, you had a guest on recently, and he was talking about being an injury attorney and said, you know, like, we all have this rap of being ambulance chasers. And he was talking about the power of his story, right? There's a compelling why behind why there should be, I should say, there yeah. should be a compelling why behind every law firm, right? Whether it's creating margin in my life, my family's life for the lives of the people that work for me, there's a compelling purpose there. 
dig deep and find it and start to communicate that every every law firm leader should have stories that they're able to tell that give a compelling why whether they're helping to litigate employment law whether they're helping you know in healthcare whatever they're building trusts for families we just went through that process and you know the attorneys that that helped us like they had a really compelling story and had an amazing staff behind why they did what in, in all understood why they did what they did. So no, like you don't have to be out there, you know, helping to save the rainforest. I, you know, hope you're giving back to initiatives that are close <laughs> to your own heart, but everyone has a why start to communicate that and really help create that ethos um, for your team of identity and helping them understand the value that they bring to helping to accomplish that. Yeah. So I want to talk about kind of bridging that gap too, because like, I feel like there might be almost sort of like a curse of knowledge situation going on. Cause like, I think for like a lot of founders, it's obvious, like we're passionate people. We wouldn't go out and do something crazy, like start a business if we didn't care about something like that. But you know, there might be an issue where we might assume that employees take like the same amount of, you know, pride in, in that stuff too, but like maybe these things just aren't getting communicated. So like, how do you recommend people take this knowledge and, and get it throughout their organization to really reinforce it? It's amazing to me when I'm asked that question, the question that I ask back is, okay, well, how often are you meeting with each of your team members? How often are you talking about, you know, with them, what's going on in their lives, what's happening in their work world? What are they finding motivating in their job? What don't they find compelling? What are their strengths? Where are their blind spots? And how are you fostering those conversations? And usually the answer back to me is, yeah, I don't, I don't do that. I don't have those conversations. Like I don't have enough time to do that because it's going to take away from, you know, billable hours. And to me, I think you are losing a tremendous asset if you don't know those things about your employees, because if I can align your work with your highest and best use, your unique ability, your distinctive ability, I know that the work that you're going to produce is going to be way better than if I'm making you do things that are outside of that. So I think it takes time. I think it takes intentionality, you know, not to overuse the term as part of our name, but it takes a lot of intentionality to really understand what that those giftedness is for each person and that we're working to align that within our firm so that we're able to create this environment where people are actually able to, to really function at their highest and best use. Okay, awesome. So we've kind of talked about the vision as being like more of the central element, but as we kind of shift to getting towards the employee, so if we're starting out with stuff like one-on-ones and making time and getting stuff for our employees, um, how are uh, how are we? I mean, what do you guys recommend as far as discovering what people's strengths are? Like, you know, you guys enjoy doing like tests or indexes, or like, how do you go about finding out what people are good at? Yeah, I'm a little bit of an assessment nerd, so nice. uh, I could go down that road for a long time. There's a lot of great tools out there, whether it be Strengths Finders, which Gallup, you know, gives uses that tool. There's a great book that goes with that. It's a little bit more of like a 201, 301 look. Working Genius, Patrick Lencioni put that out a couple of years ago. That's another great assessment that really helps people understand their genius, their, you know, sort of a key strengths as an individual. Colby is another one that really helped 
each of us understand how do we behave and, you know, how do we bring those behavioral strengths to the work that we do? And so I, I recommend grabbing one of those assessments, start to use it within your culture, help people, uh, you know, help facilitate some learning around that and, and let people communicate. How are they able to use that giftedness in the work that they do? What don't they find motivating? There's, there's just some great tools out there that can really help leaders create some better understanding and self-awareness for themselves and for their teams. Okay, so that's super interesting. I love Colby. So we ended up like we we do Colby for everyone in the firm, except for like some kind of like front end, except for our salespeople. <laughs> it's like those things is like, yeah, you might have to, you know, lean into a couple of specific things for that role. But for everyone else in the business, um, we not only have everyone take the Colby, we like make everyone's Colby publicly available. Just so we try to like uh, help people facilitate and like, you know, I mean, the, the big dimension that we found that's like super interesting to kind of get for, for expectation setting, especially it's like the follow up dimension. Mm -hmm. um, it's been super transformative for us, though. And I'm actually a huge fan. I think I've probably read like two or three Lencioni books in the last couple of years. I had no idea that he had an assessment. So I'm definitely going to be looking into that as well as that. But it's like, as far as like when we kind of get these, let's let's talk about using this stuff. And like, I know just kind of like where we're on the Colby. So like, let's say that you have Colby for like one of your direct reports. Mm -hmm. How would you recommend shaping these things? And like also say this too, one of the questions that's kind of in the back of my mind, and this also could be one for the devil's advocates out there is like, what about the work that no one wants to do? Or is there such a thing? Is there stuff that people do? We just have to find the right person to do stuff that other people don't want to do. Well, can I first ask, Jan, what is your Colby profile? Do you have your numbers readily yeah. accessible? <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm a six fact finder. I am a two follow through. I am an eight quick start and I am a three implementer. Okay. I'm a six, four, eight, three. So we oh, are, nice. uh, we're very, very close here. So let me ask you in the work that you do in your day to day, you know, you've got two really key strengths there, the, the quick start and the fact finder. What in your job do you find most motivating? When are you really able to use those strengths and really light up those strengths in, in the work that you do on the, on a day to day? Okay. Interesting. So it's kind of funny, um, within the context of case fuel, I actually have have one of the lowest fact finders. We just skew super high for whatever reason. Like we got a bunch of seven, eights, and nines. So I'm actually usually the person who's dumbing things down when it comes to communication. Okay. Uh, and I think that's something, but yeah, as far as the quick start too, like, uh, and again, it's, it's kind of funny. We, a lot of our early hires, we ended up having also very high quick starts. I think it was just, and this is before we'd really gotten acquainted with Colby and testing for this stuff, but we had a lot of chiefs and <laughs> not many Indians for a while, which was good. So, I mean, basically, we, we kind of, uh, I'm, I'm, I try to, uh, like, kind of bust through, like, the way I kind of describe it is, like, usually, I'm the guy, I'm not the artillery, I'm the dude, if, if people are, are stuck on a problem, they can't take the first step, I'm the guy swimming through the uh, the river with the knife in his teeth, I'm, I'm trying to hop the barbed wire, slits and throats, and yeah. turn the lights on, like, whatever, right? Yeah. Um, because I suck at follow-up too. That's that's where we get the people are the strong follow-up people to implement, repeat, design the procedures, or you know more or less kind of like codify the procedures and, and make sure that trains run on time, things are, are doing things right. But it's just like, yeah, I think I get kind of called into to bust open problems that people are stuck on. That, that's that's kind of my thing. What is you kind of look at the work that you do on a weekly basis, if you could delegate, if you could drop one or two things, what would be the what comes to mind first for you? 
Okay, interesting. And it's, it's kind of some stuff that uh, we've made a couple of hires to support that. So uh, I've been doing a ton of content creation recently, but that's been backfilled because uh, I ended up having some follow-up stuff that I sucked at around sales management, but we've gotten a key hire around that. And that's pretty recent. So I'm kind of adapting to this new normal at the time. That's great. I mean, so these are the conversations that you'd be having with your team, right? Mm -hmm. What can we build systems around if we've got, you know, we've got a leader who has, you know, a resistant strength in follow up or follow through? Well, th there's a strength there, right? The strength in that is, you know, I can cut through bureaucratic red tape. I really kind of see the, you know, see systems in terms of like, how do we hack this and get this done quickly? I thrive on interruption. Okay, well, like I, I'm going to, I'm starting to see where I can really put Jan in a, in a spot where he's going to be able to use a lot of that giftedness. Is any role going to be 100%? No, but I probably could design a role for you or to, to ensure that you're able to spend the majority of your time doing those things. And, you know, when it comes to, to thought leadership, you're a, a six there, you're middle of the road. That's a really good bridge. That's a great bridge to, you know, hacking the the high fact finder and the, the resistant fact finder. You're probably really good at summarizing and really like, what are the key points? What are the bullet points? You're not going to be the one who probably digs into the research. Are there other people on your team who can do that? Sounds like it. So there I'm, I'm really looking at the team as a whole to say, where do we have strength? How do we make sure that we're aligning that strength to really uh, organize that towards the mission and vision that we, you know, have? as an organization. And what I love about Colby is we got to make sure we're not just cloning ourselves, right? I mean, us like six, two, four, eight threes, like we could, we will have a party every day of the week. There probably is going to be a problem with follow-up and actually getting a lot of the stuff done. But I would say to answer that question that you put out there, no, there's, there is someone who enjoys that work, whether it's hiring a virtual assistant or hiring someone who compensates for those areas of weakness for us. There probably is a resource out there, whether it's creating a system, or maybe we just need to stop doing some things that we've always done. There's probably an answer if we really dig into it. Yeah, that's awesome. And I gotta say a fantastic example right there too. Like, you know, Zach, like all you, you know, really just kind of showed how easy it was by going straight into it. And I think it's kind of crazy. Like some of these things, I definitely think it can get intimidating thinking about the totality of something like as impactful as culture. But when it comes down to it, it's really just having open conversations. And, and I think a lot of people stop themselves from even having that first step. Mm. which requires a lot of courage and a lot of vulnerability. And yeah. those are both skill sets, right, that we can, can learn, but it requires us as leaders to be committed to getting it right, not being right. Mm. And that requires an immense amount of vulnerability to actually embark on those conversations with people that we work with. Okay, I want to go a little bit deeper on that. So I think we might have a specific challenge in the law, which is like, I think it like it is sort of a chest puffy type of profession, you got to make sure you're put together, you got to present well to the image or, you know, the opposition, if you happen to be in court or whatever. So I think there are some people who have issues with vulnerability. So if someone's listening to this, and they think they might have that situation. How would you go about developing either the ability to be vulnerable or like the ability to accept vulnerability and build safety in the workplace? Like what kind of steps could people take to start building that? That's probably a whole podcast right there on what does vulnerability look like in, you know, in litigation in the courtroom? What does vulnerability look like in the workplace? Because they probably, they're probably two different things. 
And I would say in my firm, I'm going to create an environment where vulnerability is necessary, needed, and rewarded. I'm going to create an environment where protectionism, putting up the walls around us is not needed. It's not necessary. It's not rewarded. And I think Brene Brown, I got to be trained by her in this, in, in her book, Dare to Lead. You know, she talks about this whole skill set of vulnerability and in a vulnerability, if we're using this as as the definition, it embracing risk and uncertainty and emotional exposure. I know I don't have all the answers and I'm okay to admit that and I'm okay to lean into that uncertainty, but it it really, you know, in the skill sets of courage, rumbling with vulnerability, learning how to lean into those really difficult, challenging situations, learning how to live into our values, those things that all of us ascribe to that hold us to our integrity, to learning how to build trust and operationalize trust on our team. A huge one for anyone who is leading other people. And then that skill set of learning to rise, building resiliency, building flexibility, knowing we're all going to fall and fail. How do we get up? The most resilient leaders know how to recover, know how to get themselves back up. But that's vulnerability. Vulnerability is leaning into that emotion, that really messy feeling of uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. And it's required in us if we're going to lead other people. And the interesting thing in the findings of that data Vulnerability is the first thing that I look for in you. It's where your authenticity lives, but it feels like weakness to me. So it's the last thing I want you to see in me. It's a huge paradox, right? And as leaders, as employers, I have to be willing to model vulnerability first. Yeah. You mentioned two things that I thought are super interesting. So it's like, you know, people are looking to leaders, they're looking at what's rewarded or punished within the workplace. And I'm sure that comes down to stuff like bonuses, but even like conversations, like who are you shutting down in a meeting? Who's getting kudos in the Slack chat, like that kind of thing. But I think it's, you know, it might be really tough too. Like, do you think it's possible for somebody to strive for outward appearance? You know, I would say maybe outside of the business or to have the appearance of having everything together and prim proper high I'm trying to think of the right way. Just have everything look like it's completely perfect and and spotless on the outside while still maintaining that um, openness and like experimentation and vulnerability within. Like, is that is that something that's possible? I don't think so. And here's why I don't think so. I think your inside and outside has to match. But I would say I can be extremely vulnerable and also confident. I can be vulnerable and courageous. And I can also be confident in who I am, what I know to be true, and how I conduct myself. Courage and vulnerability doesn't mean weakness, doesn't mean I'm cowering down, but it also means that I'm not, I'm not arrogant and I'm not overly, I'm not egotistical and narcissistic. That is not congruent with the skill sets of courage. And I don't think that they're needed. And I would have worked with a lot of lawyers and a lot of attorneys. I would say when there is a, when you are displaying emotional intelligence and you are balancing empathy and self-regard in assertiveness and using that to make good decisions, you can be confident and humble and vulnerable and assertive in a healthy way all at the same time. Yeah. You're kind of making me think about this, like this concept. And I guess I feel like it's been coming a little bit more. And I think like, you know, with, especially with like younger generations. And I was thinking about this, this line from Damn, it feels good to be a gangsta. Uh, <laughs> 
every good conversation. Yeah, yeah. You know, real gangster ass people don't flex nuts because real gangster ass people know they got them. (laughs) It's like this concept of realness. Like, you know, it's not uh, strong to be closed off entirely. I think it's strong to be able to be open. And like, I think people really like appreciate that as realness. You think about the guys or gals that are big in any area, like Brene Brown, fantastic example too. Like it takes a lot of courage to do that. And, you know, I think there, I think maybe the, the appearance of being the, you know, the bulldog or all those crazy lawyer tropes that everyone loves to kind of like dig through. It's like, that might be going the way of the dodo. I think like it's, you know, it's, it's not emotionally intelligent. It's just kind of, you know, I think people are starting to recognize that kind of a mentality is more of a front, like over time goes on too, but maybe the real strength is, is being able to be vulnerable, right? I think so. I think you're onto it. And I love the illustration that she uses in, you know, Theodore Roosevelt's man in the arena. I like to change it to the person in the arena quote. There's no striving. There's no valiant effort to anyone if they're not willing to put in the blood and sweat and tears. And if this idea of entering the arena is a metaphor for putting ourselves out there and being brave and being confidently humble, even when we don't know what the outcome is going to be, I can walk walk into that arena not guarded and armored up because I'm afraid of getting hurt. I'm going to walk into that arena with curiosity. I'm going to walk into that arena with empathy and really this idea in understanding that I'm here to get it right with the people that I get to do life with, that I get to work with, and I'm not here to just be right. And I'm not asking for systemic vulnerability, right? Like if a lawyer is representing me, I want them to win. Like I want them to win the case. Yeah. But if I, as an attorney that owns a law firm, am not creating an environment of vulnerability, there's no way people are going to admit to mistakes and shortcomings and say like, hey, have we thought about this as a different way to approach this litigation? That vulnerability is what's going to eliminate the systemic vulnerability in the case so that we can win it and we can show up and be confident. Like that's why vulnerability is important in the in the work environment. We're all human. We're here to get it right, not be right. So that when we go into court, we've got everything worked out because our humanity, our common humanity showed up and we were able to get the thing done in the right way. Yeah. So it's almost like, you know, like the micro vulnerability leads to the macro invulnerability or like, you know, I feel like, you know, everyone can think of situations. I think it's like a lot of stuff like blind spots come from not having those conversations. Like there's so many things that people can point to. I'm not going to get into like all the weird stuff. It's like, you know, my roommate used to do engineering in college and it was like, you know, challenger disaster, like all these like different situations where people didn't speak up because it wasn't safe to and then terrible things happen. But yeah, it's like if you can be if you can be open in, in the war room, then you should be way better when right. the actual day comes, right? And it, that's why we do this work. I mean, even with surgeons and in operating rooms, because if I can have, if I as a surgeon, you know, we're talking life or death here, can create a very vulnerable environment where mistakes can be shared and you can call me out because you saw me doing something or making a mistake or forgetting something, like that requires an immense amount of vulnerability. But what is that doing? It's eliminating the vulnerability of losing a patient or making a mistake, right? That we're able to address it and we've created a safe environment for people to function in. Same thing in law, right? Same thing in engineering. You know, the Challenger disaster happened because there was no vulnerability. We couldn't talk about mistakes. You were in a higher position than me. I couldn't call you out. That requires vulnerability. That requires courage. 
Yeah, that's awesome. Okay, so as far as implementing this stuff, like, you know, it's starting at the leader, we can kind of reward the behaviors that kind of do this. As far as like, how to attract and bring people that have these qualities? Do you think it's more of an issue in general of, of getting existing people to kind of come to these new ways? Or do we have to start bringing more people that have these attitudes on day one? And you know, what do we do about people that don't want to get to get with the program? That's a big question. Yana. Sorry, that was like four. I'm sorry. That's, that, that was, was yes. Uh, no, it's good. It's good. I would say uh, yes to all of those. Uh, I think you have to start by creating the culture that you want, that you know is needed. And, you know, culture is not just creating core values. Culture is saying, what are our core values? How do we operationalize them? What do we want the culture to be and look like? And what are the habits we're going to put money and time and energy behind? That's the ethos of who we are. And then, you know, getting the right humans on the team that are growing and healthy, uh, that we have a good, you know, leadership cadence and we have a good leadership structure. People understand and have clarity to their role. We have, you know, a healthy problem solving orientation as a team. And, you know, people understand how they're doing. They understand where they're, where they're succeeding, what they need to be working on. And, you know, ultimately, if, if I know what I'm doing well, if I know what I'm doing that I need to work on, we can create a plan towards getting there. And, and obviously, we need to invest in people. And oftentimes, there's, there's folks on the team that maybe this is just not the right fit for them. And we have to treat them with dignity and humanity. But maybe finding a different place to work might be the best thing for them, and ultimately for the organization. So don't hear me say like, go like, you know, fire eight people today. No, like create the environment, give them opportunity to learn and grow, create clarity, have the conversation. And ultimately, that's going to start telling you, is this a right fit or is this the wrong fit? I love that Jim Collins analogy, right people in the bus, right people in the right seats, doing the right things. Mm -hmm. And kind of like going on to that too, like, you know, I think it's it's important. And what I'm kind of hearing there is like, you know, you got to like do everything as a leader to make sure that you have the right place. But like, there's almost a due diligence past a certain point, like you got to, you know, at some point, you got to have the decision, but kind of bring us full circle to the accountability stuff. How do you deal with people that might be resisting stuff like, I don't know, just like people that have uh, challenged taking ownership over these things? Because I can, I, I've had situations in the past, and this has been, you know, both internally and with stuff that we've had, I mean, we're we're kind of exposed sometimes to clients' operational effectiveness when it comes to yeah, having a successful marketing campaign, hopefully. But, you know, unfortunately, people end up sometimes getting exposed for systems that really are, or people, wrong people on the bus that, that aren't doing this. So how do you get somebody who might be headed towards a situation where balls are being dropped back onto the track without necessarily blowing them out or demotivating them or, or that kind of a situation. Because I feel like there's this, this moment where somebody is taking a step off the path and it could kind of go either way. And those are the ones that, that sometimes you wonder if you could have saved them at the end of the day. And most of the time, when I really dig into that with leaders, they never actually had those hard, courageous conversations. And you know, a great resource to help you with that is uh, Radical Candor by Kim Scott. She lays out this amazing framework for that or Crucial Conversations is another great resource. But I would say number one, it starts with actually having that conversation. Here's what I'm seeing. Help me understand what happened here. I'm going to get really curious with the person. And they may say, Zach, 
I didn't even know what she wanted me to do. Like, I didn't know that that was a ball that I was even supposed to be holding. Okay, well, now we can talk about that. We can have a conversation about that. How do I paint done? How do I give some great clarity here? Every person on the team should have a very clear mission of their role, like a one sentence, the end of the day, the end of the week, hitting a home run for this job is what? What are their KPIs? What are they ultimate? What's the number that they are ultimately responsible for? And are we measuring that regularly? And then bullet point four to five key responsibilities for them in their job. Everyone understanding that, I mean, that's that honestly is more clarity than most people have in their jobs. And then we can start having regular conversations about that. But to have the hard conversation, that's where it has to start in you know, the the more a leader is willing to hold people accountable, and Lencioni says this a lot in his work, the less they actually have to do it. The best accountability is peer-to-peer accountability. But I'm not going to be willing to hold you accountable as my peer if I don't see my leader being willing to hold people accountable. So we have to model it. We have to foster that in the environment. Uh, but accountability is a good thing. Accountability is a thing that helps us keep our commitments, that we are doing what we say we're going to do. Yeah. And like, if I can get vulnerable for a little bit too, it's just like at the moment right now, it's like, you know, it's, it's been a huge focus of us. Cause like one of the big things that I always wanted to do is avoid being, I felt that accountability was micromanagement. And I think it's, it's one of those things, I'm sure I'm not the only person who've gone through like this kind of a transition, but it's just been like one of those situations where, you know, I thought I was being like the cool dad or like, you know, like the, the cool boss. And at the end of the day, it was just like, you know, I was, it's, it's tough because sometimes things can slip in and people follow those habits. And I mean, it's not cool and bad things happen in the business for sure. So it's like one of those things that you have to do for somebody that doesn't feel good. And, you know, especially if you're a person who just like likes to keep people happy or whatever, it's, it's, it's a hard thing to happen, but yeah, you know, it's, it's a battle. You kind of, I've had to fight basically, I mean, I want to say a battle, but it's like, you know, you got to, the, the rents do every day on this stuff. <laughs> you can't really yeah. take your eye off the ball, but you know, once you do it, like you said, it's something that becomes less of an active focus um, on a day to day. Yeah. Tell me, I'm curious about Mike, uh, accountability, feeling like micromanagement to you. Tell me a little bit more. Oh, I mean, it was just kind of these things because it's like, and I feel like there's, there's, I mean, I love reading books. I tried not to like talk to about too many, but like, you know, there's this uh, one of my favorite books I read recently was Multipliers uh, in the last couple of years. Love that book. But it's one of these situations where it's like, hey, you know, sometimes you want to let people figure things out on their own. You don't want to do too much. But there's this weird moment where things are kind of going off the rails and you're like, oh man, I really feel like I should have a conversation about this, but am I giving too much credit? Uh, critiquing feedback am I am I doing somebody's job of thinking for them kind of those situations and it's I feel like it's it's something that you know I've surfed to, totally in the other direction too like my version of micromanaging came from intensely micromanaging people mm. but it's like one of those situations where it just aired a little bit in, in the side of letting people figure out their own problems and then that became a standard which is which was challenging and basically that's something that you know it's just been about kind of more early and often feedback is really kind of been the, the solution for us internally yeah i mean all good you know if you're only giving good feedback it feels disingenuous mm. if you're only giving negative or critical feedback you feel like a jerk 
continuous feedback like that's the virtuous cycle there and it, you said something that was key earlier you said you know it one of the things that holds me back is my tendency to people please and if we really dig into why are we avoiding the hard conversation because we tell ourselves all kinds of crazy stories right like oh, i don't want to give them feedback even though this thing might be going off the rails because they're going to think xyz or they're going to think i don't trust them or whatever that story is. Well, am I avoiding the hard feedback because I'm uncomfortable or is it really about the other person? Mm. And for most of us, it's because we're uncomfortable. I don't really want to dig into this conversation because I'm afraid what they might think of me or that they're going to call me out that I didn't really give them a lot of clarity or we're going to have to dig into fears and feelings here. Well, that's probably the most important conversation you need to be having. Yeah. If it's scary, that's kind of a signal that you should do at the end of the day, right? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, awesome. Zach, this has been an awesome conversation. And I actually realized that we're five minutes past time, but I should kind of got in the zone. <laughs> so hopefully I've not messed your day up. But, um, you know, if anyone's been listening to this and it seems like something that, you know, is resonating with them, you know, what's the best way to get in your world? Yeah, check us out. Intentioncollective.co is our website. And if you go there, we actually offer a free 45 minute coaching call to talk to you about what's going on in the life of your firm, life of your business. Uh, where do you want to be professionally, personally, and how might we help craft a plan for you to get there? So yeah, pretty low, no risk obligation there. We've got some great resources as well, but go to intentioncollective.co and you can find all those resources and schedule that call there. Okay, awesome. And we'll have the links for that in the show note, guys. But um, yeah, Zach, thanks for an awesome conversation. It's one of these topics that I feel like you can never learn enough about. There's always mm -hmm. different levels for this. And you know, if it's any symbol of or like where this all ends up going, like when you look at the most successful businesses in the world, law firms or anything else, it's like there's a huge commonality in the focus on culture, the focus on people, the focus on openness. And you look at like, um, you know, I'm going to just stop dropping references and nerding out, but we've all read the books, you know, it's like, you, we got to have the situation and, and like these things pay dividends in a way that again, it's not going to be your new LSA campaign. But again, those those little linear changes are not going to create big spiraling upwards effects in your business. So I think it's absolutely stuff to pay attention to. If this makes you uncomfortable, again, that might be a good yeah. sign that it's something to focus on. Zach, thank you so much for coming on the show. And for everybody else, I'll see you guys next Tuesday at 8 a.m. Eastern on the Law Firm Growth Podcast. Thanks so much for your time, Jan. This was great. Thank you for listening to the Law Firm Growth Podcast. For show notes, free resources, and more, head on over to casefuel.com slash podcast. Looking forward to catching up on the next episode.